Hello, you're listening to Thoughts and Feels, the podcast that brings academic scholarship to bear on popular culture and everyday experience. In each episode, I sit down with a scholar to talk about what interests them in order to discover its connections to the world around us. I'm your host, Tim Weatherspoon. This year, the whole world watches as Americans will choose a new president. In order to do so, the political preferences of millions of Americans must be aggregated in order to decide a single winner, the next president. This is known as a social choice, and there are many ways to accomplish this task. However, many of these ways are dramatically flawed, including the ones that are the most widespread. My guest today is Stephen Brams, professor of politics at New York University. Professor Brams is credited with the discovery of an alternative form of making a social choice known as approval voting. I'm very grateful to have him on the show. So, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. So, before we talk about approval voting, I'd like to talk about social choice procedures in general. Oh, yes. A social choice procedure is any process where we take the preferences of individuals and we transform them into some kind of group choice. That's right, except they don't have to be preferences. They can be grades for example, uh, acceptable or not, but they can be uh, more fine-grained, such as grades in school. You might be able to get six or seven different grades. So that's also considered a part of social choice. And social choice also includes procedures other than voting, about, for example, dividing things fairly. Right. So it's a pretty broad topic. Right. So I'm curious, how did you first become interested in this topic? Oh, well, I've been an academic for a long time, and although this wasn't my initial field in graduate school, international relations was, I became interested when I began teaching at the University of Rochester, where the premier mathematical scientist at the time was building a program based on social choice and game theory, more mathematical approaches to the study of political science. Sure. And I became enamored of work. And I also had a background in mathematics. I did my undergraduate work at MIT and had been a math and political science major. At that time, you couldn't major in political science as such, so I had to have a real science. Oh, wow. So that kind of background gave me the basis for learning about this new field. And the new field included social choice and game theory primarily, and then I've branched out since to other fields, fair division, and applications across the board from the Bible to superpower conflict. Right. I've read a little bit of your work on fair division, and I wish we had time to talk about that more today. Yes. Today, I want to focus more about uh, voting as a social choice procedure. Probably the most widespread example is plurality voting. As used in most U.S. elections. Yes. Or every voter says, this is my favorite candidate, and whichever candidate gets the most vote is the winner. Very simple. Yes. Each voter has one vote, and the candidate with the most votes wins, and that doesn't necessarily have to be a majority, because if there are more than two candidates, several candidates might split the vote, and nobody gets a majority. So plurality voting means the person uh, with the most votes, uh, not necessarily a majority wins. Right. So I think we can look back to history. Often third-party candidates are said to be spoilers or something like this. This is typical for plurality voting. 
Yes, we, we actually have a uh, term in political science for that, and that's the so-called wasted vote phenomenon, that you waste your vote if you vote for a third or fourth party because they have essentially no chance of winning. So people, even if they support, let's say, the Greens or some other minor party, may desert that party in the end because their vote won't count because it's really the two major party nominees in a general election that almost always win. Right. Now, one way of dealing with this is to have a runoff between the two top candidates. So the two that get the most votes go into runoff, and then it's a choice between these two, and one will generally get a majority except for a tie. So that's used in a number of jurisdictions in the United States, particularly in the South, it's used in France and presidential elections. It's quite widely used. So it's a way of trying to determine uh, between the top two who is the preferred candidate. So that's a variation of sorts on a plurality voting. Right. I'm familiar with the example of the French election in 2002. Yes. And then uh, one of the candidates who got into the runoff was a far-right candidate, Le Pen. And the candidate who came in just behind, the socialist candidate, did not make the runoff. So it would have been a, a real contest between the socialist and the eventual winner, who was right center. But it turned out to be a contest between that candidate and the far-right candidate, who lost badly. So it in, in the end, did not pick the two strongest candidates. So that's one criticism often made of plurality with a runoff, that it won't necessarily pick the two strongest candidates in the runoff. So I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today. I was telling him I was preparing for this. He's from Australia. He's a big fan of the single transferable vote system. That is quite widely used in especially English-speaking colonies, not just Australia, but Malta, Ireland, and other jurisdictions, and it's used in a few big cities in the United States. It's been used for a long time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and earlier in Ann Arbor, Michigan, two university towns, but it's now been adopted in a few other cities, Minneapolis, San Francisco, are a couple, and it allows voters to rank candidates from best to worst, and it works as follows. If no candidate gets a majority, then the candidate that gets the fewest first place vote, so we're counting only first place votes, is dropped and that candidate's votes are transferred to his or her second choice. Right. And these then bring everybody up usually and mm -hmm. the sequential elimination process continues until one candidate, if we get down to two in the end, will get a majority. But it has, in my opinion, several problems. I think the most serious problem is that it's non-monotonic, which means that possible that raising a candidate in your ranking can actually cause them to lose, just the opposite of what you want to happen. Yes, this this boggles the mind. It's, it's difficult to imagine how that could be the case, but... Well, there are simple examples. Okay. There are simple examples that illustrate it. So unbeknownst for, to the voter, when he or she goes to the polls and votes for a favorite candidate that voter may actually be hurting the candidate rather than helping him. And that's uh, been recognized for about 50 years, and proponents of the system tend to downgrade it and say, it, say it's very rare. But in close elections, a number of studies, including computer simulation studies, say it's not that rare at all. It can happen with about probability 40%. 
40%? Yes, among two or three candidates. Oh, wow. So it's a serious problem, and almost surely has happened in practice. But another problem is that it's a complex system involving elimination of candidates and transfers of their votes and reallocation of so-called surplus votes. So very few people understand it thoroughly, including even mathematicians. Mathematicians had used it for a number of years to elect uh, officers, in particular in the American Mathematical Society, the leading research math society in the United States. And they had made a false statement about it in the ballot instructions. Really? Oh, yes. And I pointed this out, and they admitted the problem, and then soon thereafter changed to approval voting, which is the system I advocate. Right. So we'll get to there in a second. We mentioned a few different kind of voting systems, and we mentioned that there's some problems with them. Yes. It's true, actually, that there's a famous theory about voting systems that are based on voter preferences from economist Kenneth Arrow. Yes. It's very complicated to explain the proof of this theorem, uh, but I wonder mm -hmm. if you could tell me more about uh, the conclusions that we can draw from it. Well, what Arrow did is posit five reasonable conditions which any voting system should meet. And I won't discuss them, but most people would agree that these are conditions which it would be ideal to satisfy. And what he showed was that these five conditions cannot all be satisfied at once. So in a sense, no voting system is perfect. But that's based on the assumption that voters rank candidates. But if they uh, grade candidates, giving different grades associated with different points to the candidates, the theorem no longer applies. That's right. And you don't get into a problem that actually precedes Arrow's theorem, the so-called Condorcet paradox, which was discovered by the Marquis de Condorcet in late 18th century France, that you can get into a situation where all voters rank candidates, but the social choice when you uh, aggregate those rankings is such that A can beat B and B can beat C, so you'd expect A to beat C, but just the opposite happens. C beats A. Yeah, uh, that uh, C might be preferred to A. So that's considered a cycle, a Condorcet cycle. Right. And at least ambiguous, who should win? Because each candidate can beat and be beaten by every other. Right. That's a good example of what Arrow's theorem shows can happen. There's kind of an incoherence in trying to satisfy all those conditions. And the best example of this incoherence is these cycles. I remember that some of those conditions are really intuitive. My favorite one that is surprisingly not always true is that if every voter prefers candidate A to candidate B, then the social choice should approve of A over B. That's correct. And this is something that can go wrong. And it just seems like, oh, wow, how can we do this? And the other one that I really like is that the voting system should not be a dictatorship. Those are two of the uh, five conditions, and they seem quite reasonable. There are one or two other conditions which not all people would agree to. Uh, you can uh, dispute the theorem by saying its assumptions, the conditions, uh, are not necessarily ones that every system should satisfy. But my main point is that if we go outside the domain of voters ranking candidates and allow them to give different grades to candidates, then the theorem just doesn't apply. Yes. And you don't get, for example, these Condorcet cycles. Right. So approval voting, we haven't said it explicitly yet, is grading candidates in some way. Is that correct? 
That's correct. But approval voting limits uh, voters to just two grades. You approve or you don't approve of candidates. All right. So you can think of uh, approval as giving a candidate one point and not approving is giving that candidate zero points. And then the candidate with the most approval vote wins. Not necessarily whether he gets a majority or not, because they may split the vote as with plurality voting. But generally, we find the winning candidate in real elections that use approval voting does have majority approval. So it's used amongst professional organizations mostly, right? Yes, it's used in several major professional societies, mostly in the sciences, mathematics, statistics, operations research. We've spent time over the years in arguing for its use in, and I want to emphasize, multi-candidate elections, candidate elections with more than two candidates. One doesn't need approval voting to only two candidates because a voter will generally approve of or prefer one candidate over the other. But when there are three or more candidates, you can get into problems. And in particular, the candidates on the more extreme side of the ideological spectrum the candidate on the right and the candidate on the left often went out over the candidate in the middle, even though the candidate in the middle could beat each of his opponents left and right in a pairwise contest. Right. So speaking of, of the far right, uh, yes. we could talk about the most recent Republican primary with Donald Trump. Is really not approved by a whole lot of even Republican voters. Uh, many major Republican figures still hesitate to endorse him or said they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. So to what degree is he a product of plurality voting? Well, very much. He was the strongest minority candidate. He got about a third of the Republican primary vote overall, if you sum those votes over all states that had Republican primaries. But polls also show that more than 50% of even Republicans uh, did not consider him acceptable, and even more today than during the primary season. Right. So he was distinctly a minority candidate and minority plurality winner, even within the Republican race. In fact, some estimates say that if you looked at uh, his sort of net support, approval versus disapproval, and because many people disapproved him, he would have come in probably around eighth out of the 17 original Republican candidates. Oh, wow. So he's by means a consensus choice. Do we know who might have won under approval voting? It probably or... would have been one of the more moderate candidates like Bush, Jeb Bush, or Rubio, the senator from uh, Florida. Uh, Jeb Bush, also a former governor from Florida. Or Kasich, who is the governor of Ohio. They probably would have risen to the top or nearly the top uh, because they were generally acceptable to large numbers, if not a majority of the uh, Republican voters. It seems to me those candidates are ideologically quite similar. Yes. So they really end up splitting up their votes between them. Under approval voting, you'd say, oh, any of those three guys is okay by me. Well, the point is, with approval voting, they can share approval. Right. You can approve of all of them. And I think most voters in the Republican primary would have approved of two or three or four of the 17 original candidates. So you don't have to take away a vote from one candidate if you want to support the other. You could approve of all. So that means that there's no spoiler effect. Right. Whereby a candidate who's only got a minority appeal, and I would point to 
Ralph Nader in the right. 2000, who only got 3% of the national vote. In Florida, which was a crucial state that determined the outcome, he took away from the Democratic candidate, Al Gore, and uh, enabled George Bush to squeak by. But if the NATO voters had not had NATO to vote for, they almost surely would have supported, or large numbers would have supported Gore. Right. And Gore, instead of losing by 537 votes, probably would have won by tens of thousands of votes that NATO got. Right. So that's an example of a spoiler. And it often presents the majority choice from winning. So you have a number of spoilers the more candidates you have in an election. So you're talking about strategic voting. Yes, because when you make a decision at the polls, it's often not your favorite candidate, right. but uh, the candidate who is acceptable and you think has the best chance of winning. So you, under plurality voting, have to take away a vote from your favorite candidate to uh, vote for that strategic choice, whereas under approval voting, you would always vote for your favorite candidate and then might cast a second approval vote for a more strategic choice who's more viable in the election. I mean, this is quite relevant to the recent election as well. Bernie Sanders had such broad support. There must be some voters on the far left who aren't satisfied with Hillary Clinton, but that's right. are more scared of Donald Trump. So under approval voting, they could maybe cast a vote for Jill Stein to voice That's right. their sincere political views. Right. So these third, fourth party candidates, the Green Party candidate or the Libertarian candidate, instead of getting tiny percentages, which they probably will get in the general election, maybe one or two percent, would move up to five to ten percent, which they're actually showing in the polls now, and therefore be more serious candidates, taken more seriously, and not suffered from the wasted vote phenomenon. So I think it would definitely give a boost to relatively minor candidates today, but who, if sufficiently popular, could actually win the election. And I think our present system logically rules these candidates out. There's been no third-party candidate who's ever won in a U.S. presidential election. The closest we came was in 1912, when Teddy Roosevelt bolted the Republican Party, formed the progressive most party and got 27% of the popular vote. So he beat the Republican candidate, William Howard Taft, but that allowed the Democrat, Woodrow Wilson, to win in a landslide. Right. So third-party candidates have suffered greatly in the presidential election, so the system has largely been closed to all but the two major party candidates, and I think approval voting would tend to open things up. I mean, if you go out, uh, do man-on-the-street interviews, I think you'll find a lot of discontent with our two major parties, but yet... Right. And we have low voter turnout in the U.S. Yes. So you wonder, like, how much support is there really on the far left or even the far right? But our election system is unable to reflect that because people vote strategically more than sincerely. That's right. Now, to be sure, the third and fourth party candidates would not generally get majority support or even right. morality support. But then we would, with approval voting, have candidates entering who could not win under the plurality system, but could win their approval voting. And one good example I would suggest is Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, who's this multi-billionaire and thought about running for president in the spring of this year. Mm-hmm. Actually, he took out a billion dollars to prepare for a run, but decided in the end that he would be taking away too much from Hillary Clinton and prevent her from winning, even though he thought he was the stronger candidate, so decided not to run. But I think he would have entered the race if there had been approval voting because he could have shared 
the centrist vote with Hillary and also picked up more Republican votes because many Republicans consider Hillary unacceptable. So potentially could have been the winner under approval voting and I think would have entered if there had been approval voting. Great. I want to move on away from the U.S. Yeah. Because you've recently commented about the Brexit referendum. Yes. So in the Brexit referendum, you have only two choices. And you commented that if there's only two choices, whatever voting procedure you use is probably unproblematic. But for Brexit, maybe the problem is that there were only two choices. That's what I suggested. And it seems to me that if you use approval voting, can present the voters with additional choices. So in the case of Brexit, I think you could have added five compromise choices. A compromise choice might be that England has its say on immigration, let's say, Mm -hmm. but otherwise accepts most of the provisions of the EU. But many voters in England felt strongly and wanted to limit immigration that Germany and other countries had suggested we do with all the refugees, allow all the refugees from the Middle East and Africa to enter in large numbers. So I think the Brexit vote reflected the fact that there was a lot of anti-immigrant feeling. Right. I was in UK during that referendum, and I agree with you completely. A lot of discussion in the news media was about immigration policy and who who was allowed to come in through the EU. Exactly. And uh, if that had been a compromise option, as well as maybe a couple other compromise options, under approval voting, that probably would have been acceptable to more voters than all in or all out, which the actual referendum only allowed voters to indicate. Right. So I think this would be a way of allowing voters more say in a referendum by giving them additional options, using approval voting, and probably a compromise alternative, just as a more moderate or centrist candidate would win under approval voting in a candidate election in a referendum, I think a more moderate option would be likely in a case like this. Right. We still don't know what leave will actually look like, uh, particularly whether or not the UK will remain in the common market or not. But if they do remain in the common market, they will have to negotiate. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a tough negotiation for the UK because the EU wants to deter other countries from doing what the UK did, exiting. So they're going to make it hard for the UK to say it got what it wanted out of the referendum by uh, negotiating these compromises. So in a way, you can think of adding options and using approval voting as a better way to have the public express its preferences, which is basically what happens in a legislature. Compromises are reached on bills, provisions are added, provisions are subtracted. So those would be the compromise options that you would allow in a referendum. Yeah, that sounds great. Of course, if we just did transferable vote or plurality, if you put those different leave shades on the ballot, of course, we remain. So that's not fair either. So it seems to me that approval voting makes a nice compromise in giving the voters a choice. Other compromises uh, along these same lines would allow voters to not just indicate acceptable and non-acceptable, but allow them to give a finer grade. So the next step up would be three grades, good, medium, or bad. Mm-hmm. And the problem with giving people more options is it's harder for voters to, I think, 
come up with what they consider the appropriate grade. Mm -hmm. But the more serious problem is that you can get into these cycles, which I was talking about before, Okay. where A beats B and B beats C, but C then goes and beats A, uh, and that can happen with more than two grades. So that's why I favor only two grades. It's easy to understand. It's easy to implement. Right. And that generally will avoid problems like spoilers. It sounds wonderful, but yet <laughs> can find no place where I can cast an approval vote. So I'm wondering what some of the criticisms of approval voting are. Well, I don't think there are any serious criticisms, but it is alleged by some that it has a couple problems. One is that it would tend to find the lowest common denominator, the compromise, which is daily acceptable to uh, most voters, but really doesn't have any teeth in it. Okay. And my view is that if you add the lowest common denominator, uh, what you think is a minimally acceptable alternative to most voters, most voters would blanch at that and probably not consider it acceptable. And a good example of that would be, I think, the 1980 election, which uh, Ronald Reagan won. Now, Reagan was considered a quite far-right candidate, mm -hmm. but uh, many people found acceptable his strong stands. Uh, nobody ever accused Reagan of arcing convictions. Right. So he was, uh, no question, the majority choice and would have won under any voting system, including approval voting. So you put a bland alternative up there, and he, or the alternative, if it's a referendum, would almost surely lose. So I think the charge that the lowest common denominator, the bland alternative, would win is a false one. And therefore, I don't consider that a strong criticism of approval voting. The second charge is that it would undermine the two-party system. But I don't consider the two-party system sacrosanct. Most democracies in the world, particularly parliamentary systems in Europe, have multiple parties and put together coalition governments. And I think they're at least as democratic as the United States. In fact, one can argue more democratic because different views are represented in parliament, the Greens and so on. In the end, we want to reflect the views of the society as accurately as we can. It's hard to imagine with just two parties that you have a lot That's of flexibility right. to to build a big umbrella of views and... That's right. So I, I think that, as I said earlier, approval voting would open things up to uh, third and fourth parties. But I'm recommending it really only for single winner elections. If you're electing multiple winners, as to say a city council, mm -hmm. then it's not necessarily going to uh, find the majority factions and ensure their representation, which I think one wants to do in a council or a legislature. Right. So I think it's primarily needed for single-win elections, for mayor, for president, for governor. But other systems, including those that give proportional representation to different parties, different factions, is needed to elect multiple winners in a legislature or in a council. Great. So I know that after you first looked at approval voting, that you lobbied in different governor houses and different legislative yes. bodies. I'm curious what you thought were the major challenges to adopting approval voting as an election reform. Well, I think the major challenge is inertia. We've lived with the present system of plurality voting, or sometimes plurality voting with a runoff, for over 200 years in the United States. It's the most common system used throughout the world to elect single winners. Even though, uh, in the United States anyway, enacting approval voting would not take a constitutional amendment. Right. It requires only passage of a 
statute by a state legislature to enact it in the state. Right. Still a radical reform because it it deviates from the idea of one person, one vote. Each person would have multiple approval votes. But I have a different slogan. I uh, say it satisfies the idea of one candidate, one vote. So right. you make a judgment about each and every candidate. Is he or she acceptable? And if so, then you approve of that candidate. And it seems to me that's at least as logical a voting process as arbitrarily limiting voters to one vote. In fact, I think it's much less arbitrary because you can better express your preferences if you have multiple votes. You sold me, but uh, okay. I have no, no place to, to enact election reform. So uh, thanks again. So my guest again today is Dr. Stephen J. Brams, professor of politics at New York University and author of many books, including Mathematics and Democracy, Designing Better Voting and Fair Division Procedures, published by Princeton in 2008. Thanks again for being on the show. Okay, thanks, Tim. The website for Thoughts and Feels is drtimweatherspoon.com slash podcast. There you can find links to people and articles discussed in the episode. You can subscribe to Thoughts and Feels on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, thanks for listening.